Good morning, baseball fans, and welcome to episode 35 of the Morning Round Trip podcast here on August 14th. My name is Drew Frank, joined by my co-host Liam Crothers. Hello and good morning. And today we're headlined by an update on the St. Louis Cardinals situation. They're supposed to play the White Sox tonight, and while that game hasn't officially been canceled... Their first scheduled flight to O'Hare Airport in Chicago was canceled. They've got a doubleheader scheduled for tomorrow, reportedly, and it's all but official that they will not be returning to action tonight and will instead return to play two games in Chicago, the South Side tomorrow, as well as one on Sunday to complete the three-game series, and then head to Wrigley and play a doubleheader on Monday and a doubleheader on Wednesday. So there's all sorts of baseball coming up for these Cardinals. It's believed that the reason today's game was delayed was because a coach had tested positive. But since he had been isolated and away from the rest of the team, they still expect that if they get those negative tests, which they are expecting, then they will be able to play this weekend. So keep an eye out for their return. Another type of COVID update comes as a statement from Zach Plezak as he went on Instagram and said that he admitted he broke curfew in Chicago, but since he practiced safe distancing when he went out to dinner and hung out with friends, he thinks that the media is portraying him a little unfairly. He says his actions were not malicious and he feels like people are kind of exaggerating and making him out to more of a villain than he was. I'm sure Major League Baseball appreciates that he uh, took the time to make sure he was socially distancing and making sure he wasn't getting too close with anybody, probably covering his mouth if he coughed. I think the MLB would have appreciated it more if he would have followed the guidelines that they put in place beforehand. And speaking of players speaking out, we've got more quotes from Joe Kelly, which are always a fun time. This time it came on Ross Stripling's podcast, where he went on for a full episode and, and said a lot. But regarding the Astros and his suspension, he had some interesting quotes, so a little bit of long quote, so bear with me here. He says, The people who took the fall for what happened is nonsense. Yes, everyone is involved, but the way that sign-stealing system was run over there was not from the coaching staff. They're not the head boss in charge of that thing. It's the players. So now the players get immunity, and all they do is go snitch like a little B-explicitive. And they don't have to get fined. They don't have to lose games. Cheating? They cheated. Everyone knows they're cheaters. They know they're cheaters. It's over. That's been there, done that. But now they mess it up by ruining other people's lives. It's so effed up, they did it twice. When you taint someone else's name to save your own name, this is one of the worst things that you could do. That really friggin' bugs me. I think it'll be irritated forever. And then, talking about the Astros players, talking about the little scuffle, he says he didn't want to even talk to them because they're not respectable men to him, was the quote. And then the guy that was hosting the show, Ross Stripling, of course, his teammate with the Dodgers, said that the Astros' apologies in spring training, which a lot of people didn't perceive as too sincerely, he said the Dodgers were among that group, and all those apologies did was light a fire under us all over again. And he says, as a team that got beat by that team, you'll never get over it. You'll absolutely never get over it. And then specifically talking about his suspension, 
And this is the last quote I'll read here, so <laughs> don't worry. He said that he thought it was crazy in the face of what happened and that it blows his mind still. It's so upsetting. He said that largely because he didn't actually hit anyone. He wasn't ejected or even warned. He stayed in the game, finished the inning. And then he said that the MLB cited the fact that he tried to incite the Astros to leave their dugout, which he says is complete BS. And then talking about that dugout, he said that their manager, Dusty Baker, verbatim yelled, get your little skinny ass on the mound. So he says, "How? why does his cuss words get eight games and, hit, and the Astros get zero? This makes complete sense, right? Welcome to planet Earth, a debacle. Lots to unpack here from Joe Kelly and Ross Stripling. Man, can you blame Joe Kelly for feeling the way that he feels about the situation? I mean, you're put in a position where you understand that a group of individuals has done something outside of the confines of the rules of the game you participate in, right? And you have an organization who goes out of their way to break the rules that have been put in place, and the governing body of that team does nothing to reprimand them, and instead begins to take action against players for speaking out for attempting to rectify the situation by themselves on the field. Joe Kelly, while I think throwing at people's heads as it's interpreted is wrong, I don't think you should ever throw at someone's head. If you're going to throw at someone, ribs and below is probably the place to do it. That being said, he didn't hit anyone in the head. And I mean, you can't feel anything less than sympathy for Joe Kelly in this situation because the hypocrisy from both Major League Baseball and the Houston Astros is just rampant in this situation. I mean, the Astros ruin people's lives, legitimately. There are pitchers who are never going to get another chance in the major leagues because they had a couple of bad games against the Astros. And that's the reality of it. I can't blame him one bit. Quickly in other league news, we saw Jeff McNeil carted off the field after making a crazy catch up against the wall. His x-rays did come back negative, so he's just day-to-day. It looked a little dangerous because he was he, he made the catch. It was great, but then when you realize that the player hasn't gotten up yet and you start to realize the injury, it's always scary, but just day-to-day for now is good. And the Phillies promoted Alec Bohm. They're one of the top prospects, a third-base power hitter, big guy. He uh, made his debut last night against the Orioles, and he doubled in his first at-bat. So, nice showing there, and adding a little bit more youth to this team is always exciting. Now, getting into our games last night, we'll start in the NL Central with our 5-10 start and a little bit of a later afternoon game between Trevor Williams' Pirates and Anthony Disclafani's Reds. Now, we talked before about how Disclafani carried in a 0.00 ERA, and if he could get himself into qualified territory, he would have the MLB lead for that ERA title. But his second pitch of the game was hit for a home run by Adam Frazier, so not necessarily um, keeping him in that race, immediately tarnishing that ERA. But things would only get worse from there. We saw Colin Moran take him deep later on in the inning, Gregory Polanco in the next inning, and then just more hits kept piling on. Seven runs came across the score in that second inning after the two solo shots in the first. I mean, that Descalfani's day was over after only going two innings with a line of nine earned runs, 
two walks, and only a single strikeout. And you look at the other side of the coin, for Trevor Williams, you didn't need to be great, you just had to be better than Anthony DiSclefani. Williams in this one goes five innings, seven hits against him, but only three earned runs. This game is a little bit of an anomaly. After Pittsburgh got those nine runs early on in the game, they were quiet the rest of the night, so a great job there from both Trevor Williams and the rest of the pitching staff in the Pittsburgh Pirates bullpen. But Cincinnati didn't go down quietly near the end of the game. They ended up stranding what would be the tying run on deck. Slowly chipped away in this one, and a big part of that chipping away was Nick Senzel. Senzel goes three for four with a double and a home run, and in total, he drives in four RBIs. And the Reds were doing it with the glove, too. We saw Shogo Akiyama make a couple of really nice plays out in left field to try to keep the lead for the Pirates right where it was to give the Bats a chance to do something in this game. So I like the resolve here from the Cincinnati Reds ball club to not go down quietly. And I want to give a shout out to the Reds bullpen as well because they allowed the Bats to have a chance to come back. This is a bullpen that had looked really bad and a four-digit ERA at one point earlier on as it was over 10 but it drops down quite substantially after this game where they combine to throw seven scoreless innings and only allow three base runners uh, with only two hits and one walk allowed. Discalfani leaves early after only two innings, but it was the bullpen that gave him a chance. Unfortunately, they just couldn't convert. And we saw the Stars continue to struggle in this game. Josh Bell goes one for five. OPS down that 560. Eugenio Suarez, one for four. OPS down at 530. Two guys that I mentioned their OPS in the 500s, they're both up at 930 last year. So big struggles, but you hope they can turn it around. And I'll tell you, the Padres looked at this game from the Pirates and wonder what could have been. They also scored two runs in the first inning, but then that was it. They weren't able to tack on the seventh spot in the second we saw the Pirates do and were instead shut out for the next eight straight frames by the Dodgers. And their 2-0 lead is met by 11 unanswered Dodger runs as they take this game 11-2. The pitchers were good on the side of the Dodgers. Julio Urias mentioned struggled giving up two in the first, but then... Locked himself in. He picked up the quality start by going six and a third, only five hits, and didn't walk a single batter. But the star in this game was none other than the new acquisition of Mookie Betts. Mookie Betts made Chris Paddock and the San Diego Padres pay. Paddock only lasts three innings in this one, gives up six hits and six earned runs, walks one, and only strikes out one batter. And Paddock allowed three home runs. This Dodger offense combines for six home runs, from four players in total. Corey Seager goes yard. This one was mashed. That's a great sight to see for the Dodgers. Get Corey Seager back in that lineup, and he's continuing to mash the ball. But like you said, the big story here is Mookie Betts, a three-home run game. He goes four for four, drives in five RBIs. He reaches base five times, but those three home runs put him in some elite territory. He becomes the third player ever to have six three-home run games. He's up there with Johnny Mize, a Hall of Famer, and Cubs great Sammy Sosa. So some rarefied air that Mookie Betts is uh, dancing in right there. And at only 27 years old, you've got to like his chances of passing them both and setting the all-time record. That's definitely still in the question. But just quickly to touch on Chris Paddock. I mean, this is the worst start we've seen from him in quite some time. And the big problem was they were hunting the fastball. 
You mentioned his line was not pretty. He allowed eight hard hits in only three innings, and all four run-scoring plays happened by the Dodgers hitting one of his fastballs. The Betts home run, the Seager home run, the Pollock home run, the Pollock RBI double. All of those, they were just looking fastball, and they drilled it. So not sure if he will be able to kind of work around it with sequencing better next time, but a very clear pattern there in terms of what led to his failure. A note on Paddock's fastball, the first home run that Mookie Betts hit off of it wasn't even a poorly placed fastball. I mean, no. it's it's probably called a strike in most games. It's about an inch and a half off the plate, maybe even a little bit less. Betts just went out and found it. So it's clear that the Dodgers hitters were sitting dead red in this one. And when they got the fastballs, they weren't missing them. And Tampa Bay wasn't sitting dead red on any single pitch because they were red hot on every single pitch last night at Fenway Park. This game, 17-8, to but it was over from the start for the most part. We saw Kyle Hart make his debut for the Red Sox, put in a tough situation against a very powerful Tampa Bay Rays lineup, and he wasn't able to surprise anybody and put up a quality start. Instead... Two innings, seven hits, seven runs allowed. Tampa Bay sweeps the four-game series, pushing their win streak to now six games long. And I think the biggest number in this game to look at is Boston's first three pitchers combined to get 15 batters out and allow 16 runners to score. That can't happen. Wasn't a good look from them. On the Tampa Bay side of things, I mentioned all the run support. Tyler Glasnow did not need to be good, and he wasn't. He would have, you know, been put under more of a microscope if the run support wasn't there. This game, he goes four innings, allows eight hits, giving up five runs, all of them earned. He walked two, struck out eight, but with an ERA up at over seven, it's almost time to start worrying about this guy. You want to talk about a rough situation for a guy to be put in in his first big league game? They sent him out to the Wolves in this one. The Tampa Bay Rays have been killing the baseball against the Boston Red Sox in this series. They scored eight runs in the first game that they played, eight runs in the second game that they played. They put up nine runs in the third game, and they put up 17 in this game. That's 42 runs over four games for a red-hot Rays offense. I mean, can you blame the kid? It's really tough to go out there against any MLB team for your Major League debut, let alone a team that's been crushing the baseball against you guys. And some of the big bats continue to hit well for Tampa Bay. Brandon Lau hit one 459 feet out to right field. That's going to get out of any park. Definitely going to get out of right field in Fenway. Moves his average up over 300. Now he's slashing 302, 371, 651 on the season. An absolute star that a lot of people don't give the attention to that he deserves. And in this one, both of the new acquisitions from San Diego were hitting. We saw Hunter Renfro hit two home runs, going three for six, scoring all three times he reached base. And Manuel Margot, four for six on the day. That's looking good. The Rays front office continues to impress. You mentioned Hunter Renfro having a big game. While Tommy Pham did hit a home run in that game against the Dodgers, Renfro puts up two in this game. And so far this year, he's been a whole lot better than Tommy Pham. He's costing the Rays a lot less money, and they've got him locked up for a longer term in terms of team control. So this is looking like a really good move for the Rays. 
We talked about Tampa Bay extending their win streak to six. Baltimore extends their win streak to five. Those two teams now have the two longest winning streaks in the MLB. Baltimore now 10-7, and seven, so they'd be in a playoff spot in either league as things stand, but that win streak's in trouble. They've got the Nationals coming into Camden Yards to start a series this weekend. They'll be facing Strasburg, Corbin, and Scherzer. <laughs> Good luck to that win streak. Have fun, boys. I wish them the best. <laughs> we also saw Yu Darvish take a no-hitter into the seventh inning against the Brewers at home last night before he lost it to a Justin Smoke home run. Finishes very strong. Seven innings, just the one hit and run allowed. 11 strikeouts for Darvish. He's looks good and, you know, looking like that contract that he signs might just be a bargain. This is the best start for the Cubs since the early 1900s. I think they're pretty happy with what they're getting from their starters. And another team that's had a pretty good start so far, the New York Yankees. Dominant to start the season, but their lead has quickly closed. They will now be facing the Boston Red Sox, trying to expand the gap that the Red Sox just helped the Rays close a little bit. And we'll start there for predictions tonight. This is Garrett Cole's first ever Red Sox-Yankees game. Can't say that right now is the peak of the rivalry, but still going to be an important and probably memorable game for Garrett Cole. That goes tonight at 7.05. A little bit funny here. Boston doesn't have a starter announced. Less than 12 hours before first pitch and their rotation for the series, TBD tonight, Evaldi tomorrow. TBD on Sunday, TBD on Monday. So we know this team's got all sorts of pitching problems. I think I've got Garrett Cole in this one, and I don't think I'm putting words in your mouth by guessing that you've got Garrett Cole as well. Does it matter that we don't know who the Red Sox are going to start in this one? <laughs> I don't think so. Garrett Cole is a god on the mound right now. He's been almost untouchable every time he takes the mound. His fastball looks incredible. He's striking out everyone that he faces, taking Yankees. And we've got a rematch from last weekend happening this time at Target Field as the Royals take on the Twins. The Royals swept them last time out, so don't overlook this matchup. Jake Dunas taking on Jake Odorizzi. And KC has been one of the strongest spoilers in the league. Right now they're 8-11, and but six of those eight wins have come against teams that are likely playoff bound. We mentioned the three against the Twins. They took one from Cleveland, Cincinnati, Chicago Cubs. Like the, These guys are, are doing it, and if they take one or two this weekend, I mean, that's really going to go a long way to keeping the Twins from running away with the Central. I think if the Minnesota Twins allow Kansas City to come into Target Field and take the first game of this series off of them, I think it's going to really hurt their confidence. I mean, this Twins ball club is still rocking the best run differential in the American League. They have a 7-1 and record at Target Field. I think you got to go Twins in this one. I agree. I, I think you got to go Twins. We only saw them put up a combined 10 runs across the three games that they lost to KC last weekend. So it's really about if the bats can come alive at home. They've been great at home, and I wouldn't doubt it. Battle of the Bay Area late night tonight at quarter to 10 Eastern time as Frankie Montes takes on Johnny Cueto. Cueto's looks good, but hasn't quite had luck on his side so far this year. I'm going to go with the underdog here and say Cueto pulls out a win against their geographical rivals. Battle of the Bay Area. The A's are coming off of an off day, and they're going to turn to Frankie Montes, who I think has looked fantastic, man. He's rocking a 1.57 ERA this year. I think you go A's over Giants. 
that'll do it for today's show. You can find us on Twitter at Trip Morning. You can find us on Instagram at Morning Round Trip. And we'll be right back here tomorrow morning. For Drew Frank and Liam Crothers, have a great day, everyone.